This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to the Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Kaur. Welcome again to the Inspiration Project. We're excited to have our next guest that we are putting in the hot seat to learn from their experiences and and, uh, some of their background. Absolutely delighted to welcome Professor Ian Harper to the podcast today. Um, Professor Harper has had an illustrious career uh, stretching over decades. He currently is uh, Dean of Melbourne Business School, Co-Dean of the University of Melbourne's Faculty of Business Economics, serving uh, on the the board of the Reserve Bank of Australia. He's been involved with the University of Melbourne for more than 20 years in various roles and was elected Emeritus Professor of the University when he concluded his formal commitments there in 2018. He's also served in a number of government agencies, including the Australian Government's Competition Policy Review in uh, 2014 and 15, and was the inaugural chair of the Australian Fair Pay Commission which was commissioned to look at uh, the, the way in which uh, the nation was balancing the the, uh, the needs for salaries and, and pay. He's a member of many associations, been elected to a fellow of the Academic of Social Sciences, a fellow of the Australian Institute of Company Directors, uh, elected a distinguished public policy fellow of the Economic Society of Australia and received the Vice-Chancellor's Alumni Excellence Award from the University of Queensland. In his spare time, he's written... A, a, almost a dozen books and articles and continues to serve uh, our community in uh, the roles that he fills at the moment. Professor, it's uh, wonderful to have you here. Um, how have you been able to fit in a conversation with us in uh, all that busy schedule that you hold? It's lovely to be here, Brendan, and thank you for the invitation. Uh, it's not really a question of fitting it in. Brother, uh, this is a privilege and uh, I'm delighted to have a conversation with you about these well, thank you. Um, it's it's no doubt and un- unquestioned that you've had opportunities that uh, few people could imagine having and born responsibility that, that few in the nation um, are asked to carry. Um, I, I wonder, do you, are you conscious when you're, for example, serving on the Reserve Bank of Australia and, and making decisions that affect the fiscal policy and the financial um, environment of the nation all the way down to households, are you conscious of the the burden of that responsibility? Well, I would say, Brendan, that it's shared responsibility. Uh, so one thing is that, yes, they are responsible positions. Thank you for mentioning that. Uh, but I'm not alone. In each of those cases, I share the responsibility with other Australians. And um, that, I think makes it easier. As as you would know, a burden shared is a burden halved. And uh, I think that applies to these positions of responsibility as much as it does to other personal issues. That's a a good point to remember. Um, I I guess that is a truism regardless of of, uh, how large the decisions are that you're making when you you Mm. are able to get the wisdom and the counsel of, of peers. That's uh, right, Brendan. And and I may say so, given that our audience is younger than than you and I, um, 
we were much more used to hierarchical systems where there was, so to speak, a boss at the top. Uh, and not, they still exist, those types of systems, but it's much more common these days. And our young people will know this and recognize this when they go into the workforce. For these decisions to be made by teams, uh, the issues often are too complex for just one person. And there's much greater wisdom residing in groups of people than just one. So teamwork becomes far more important than it was perhaps when you and I mm. were the age of some of our listeners. Mm. And uh, making teams work and sharing responsibilities is the key to good organisational behaviour. Professor, if you, if you don't mind my uh, falling for an old caricature, uh, individuals who are interested in economics aren't always known to have been strong people sort of people. Um, and, and yet you're talking very sensitively about the way you need to reach decisions in an economic um, situation based on relationship with people. How, how do you see the, the balance between the cold hard facts and the need for personal engagement, personal understanding? Well, economics is a social science and it isn't um, abstract like mathematics. You can use mathematics and abstract reasoning and argument to help understand economic problems in the same way you can with physics. Uh, but at the end of the day, economics is about people's lives and their livelihoods. Mm. And you really can't make wise judgments about those things purely on the basis of science. Mm. Another way to answer your question, Brendan, is to say that there's a lot about economics that is similar to medicine. Mm. And you can, to use your own point, um, you can be a very fine technician. You could know all of the scientific results and the medical technology inside out and yet not be a good doctor because you can't really relate to and understand your patients. Uh, so you've got to, in medicine as in economics, have an eye out for how you relate to your patients, to the people, as much as you need to have a technical grasp mm. of um, the knowledge that you need to, as it were, make a good diagnosis. And, and I'm interpreting or, or listening to you hearing that each of those things are equally important. You, you must have a, a thorough knowledge of the theory and of the, mm. the constructs, but that's not enough. Mm. Similarly, you, you must be conscious of people and of what's going on, but that's neither enough. It is the combination of those two things. Combination of the two. And, and that's absolutely right, Brendan. And you see that if I could literally uh, take our listeners into the boardroom at the Reserve Bank, where we meet on the first Tuesday of every month to make decisions about the Australian economy, if I could take them in there, then they would see what we've just described in operation. Mm -hmm. um, the decisions that the board makes could be simply reduced to technical decisions about whether the interest rate should be put up or down or whatever. And frankly, Brendan, you could have a machine do that. You could have a computer mm -hmm. decide that. Mm -hmm. And you don't need anybody to be involved. It's just putting rates up or down as the case may be. In fact, of course, that's not what happens. Um, the decision is made by nine Australians, and most of whom, I might add, aren't economists. Mm. But they're people who've come from different walks of life, 
with different experience, and they then interpret the information which is put before them by the technical economists. Mm. Now, it turns out, of course, that there are also at least three economists, myself and the governor and the deputy governor of the Reserve Bank, three out of nine who are technically trained. And the other six are um, men and women from very different backgrounds. And so the decision that gets made is made through the interplay Mm. of this analysis and wisdom and input. Mm. People who can interrogate the technical discipline, the Mm. technical economic conclusion, as well as the technical economists who can then interrogate judgments or decisions or experience that is brought to the table by people who don't necessarily think like economists. And out of that, we believe, Mm. is where you get the wisdom. That's where the strength in the process is, and that's just one institution. Mm. Yeah, that's excellent. uh, I was not aware of the composition of of the... Board of the Reserve Bank. That's that's really interesting. Uh, we've been talking about the complementary nature of of uh, two types of two approaches to to deciding or interacting. I was interested in looking at your biography that there have been two complementary spheres of endeavour. You've spent a lot of your life in the world of the academics, academia, and you've spent an a proportionate part of your life in community service and in, and in government agencies. Um, the, the comments we've been talking about, has is, is that been partly the motivation for you to have straddled those two spheres rather than concentrate in, in either one? Well, just because of who I am, Brendan, I, I would not have been, for want of a better description, um, a lab rat type mm. economist. Uh, somebody who is simply interested in the technical side of the discipline is perfectly happy sitting in front of a computer. I don't mean to disparage those of my colleagues who do that, that mm. there's that important work and, and being a lab rat or lab-based researcher um, is very important work, but it's not me. I wanted to combine a technical knowledge of the discipline with the ability to apply it in real situations, to real people's lives, and to be, if you like, of more immediate benefit. Mm. And so the service, uh, the the great strength of being an academic is that you are able to do those other things as well. Mm. Uh, Maybe it wasn't as as encouraged as much as it was when I was going through, but I'm trying my hardest to uh, recreate that at the university because it's very important that the university be seen to be actively involved Mm in people's lives. Mm. As we're making this recording, of course, uh, my colleagues in the departments of immunology and um, uh, virology are working night and day um, with their colleagues around the world to try and crack the COVID-19 code. Uh, But they too uh, will come out of their laboratories and talk to people about basic things, you know, like washing your hands and Mm. not congregating in large numbers. These are conclusions that people can grasp. Mm. They're very oriented towards people's welfare and they're very immediate mm. and a long way away from the laboratory. Uh, but it's important that those two things never get too far apart. Yes. That's true in economics as much as it is in immunology. Yes. I, I think if, if we take that point I, and, and extrapolate it, what, what I'm hearing is that all knowledge can't stay as theoretical. It has to be applied at some point and, and mm. having knowledge is of value only if it makes a difference in 
the way we are living or the way we are interacting with people. Would that be yeah. a fair comment? Well, that's, yes, that is my, my view, um, Brendan. I, I, as, as I hear you say it, I, I only wince slightly because I know there are colleagues of mine at the university who do work which is utterly abstract. Mm. Uh, obviously, colleagues in the mathematics department do some work which is completely abstract. They're not alone in that. Mm. Even people who are studying art uh, would say that some of their work or music for that matter is completely abstract. So I just sort of, yes, one step short of saying yes. that um, the only useful knowledge, there is no doubt, uh, when it comes to economics anyway, that a substantial part of what we do in my discipline is really only of value if it can help people to live lives that they reason have reason to value. That, mm. That's what we're trying to achieve. Mm. Let, let me take you back, Professor. When, when was it that you realised economics was a field of interest for you? At, at what point? Did you, were you Interesting. Well, like monopoly? A, well, it was at school, Brendan, and some of our listeners might recognise this too. Now, I walked into my first class in economics in year 11, mm-hmm. uh, and I'd chosen it because I didn't think I was good enough to do physics and maths too and other higher level sciences and I wasn't that interested but I also didn't think I could do it. So I chose um, history and economics and geography and a language. I'm sure there'd be some of our listeners would recognize that. Anyway, I went into my first economics class with my school friend who also signed up. He wanted to be a lawyer. He didn't want to do or couldn't do physics either. (laughs) And I said to him in that very first class, I said to him, so what is economics anyway? Mm -hmm. I literally had no idea. Uh, but I had, we had uh, an outstanding economics teacher, mm. uh, a man who stimulated us and challenged us and made us curious about all sorts of things I'd never thought about. And um, it's one of the things, Brendan, that's given me an, in, an enduring respect for you and your colleagues, people who are professional teachers. Mm. Um, I don't need to tell you how much influence you have on people's lives or that they don't often recognise it until much later. Mm. And when they do, they realise what a gift uh, you've given them in the classroom, even if they didn't know it at the time, sometimes even if they resisted it. Uh, Well, in my case, I can uh, source my interest in this discipline, and it's served me throughout nearly a whole life now as professionally conscious, to one man who um, stimulated me and made me curious about things I'd never thought about before. Mm, how wonderful. What a, what a great gift that was to you that uh, opened a door to a pathway that has led you with twists that's and turns, right. no doubt, to, to something that's I, I'm inferring would have been a wonderful adventure for you. That's right. And, and Brendan, so many people listening to this podcast are in exactly the position I was in. Mm. So they should be thinking about, you know, what their teachers are saying and whether the things they might find a bit difficult. In fact, they're being influenced by the teacher in the right direction mm. and to your colleagues, mm. how encouraged they should be. Yeah, well, we'll uh, take that encouragement. Thank you very much. Uh, it's, yeah. It's a great great story for that. Um, Professor, one of the books you wrote is called Christian Theology and Market Economics. That's an interesting um, combination of concepts. Can you Can you tell us about how your Christian faith has played a part in your career or in your understanding of mm. economics? Mm. Well, all 
intellectual activity or scientific endeavour takes place within a social and moral political context. And economics is probably foremost amongst other sciences in that regard. It started out life as moral philosophy. Mm. Uh, the man who's often credited with uh, establishing what we now know as modern economics, a man called Adam Smith, who was a Scottish Enlightenment thinker in the late uh, 18th century. Smith was a professor of moral philosophy. Mm. And his writing about economics uh, started from that base, and other writers did the same. It sort of left behind its moral philosophical base, as a lot of other sciences did too in the late 19th century. And then there was a separation between values and science. What my Christian faith has enabled me to do, Brendan, is to reattach a moral framework, a, a sense of, of right and wrong, to what is otherwise an experimental science. Where many people would say that it's no business of the science to know what's right or wrong. The business of the science is simply to do the science, work out where the evidence is taken. Mm. Well, I can accept that. Uh, but if you're a scientist or an economist or medical practitioner for that matter, who has no moral framework, no structure of meaning or purpose that attaches to that science, then not only do I think that you are the poorer for that, I think you're much a poorer scientist and practitioner mm. for that. You lack the understanding that comes from grounding, a proper grounding in moral philosophy, ideally in a faith. So in my case, uh, my economics, I like to think, Brendan, is grounded in my Christian faith. Mm. And that gives me a much stronger framework from which to make judgments about whether we should be putting up or down interest rates or mm. minimum wages or changing the tax system. Mm. They're not just technical questions. Mm. They're questions which have a right, wrong dimension to them. Well, I'd love to come back to some of those points in a moment, but can you share with us a, a little bit, of how did you come to have such a strong Christian faith that has become that bedrock for you making big decisions? Yeah, thank you. Well, I, I, um, I wasn't raised a Christian, although I wasn't raised in a household that was hostile to Christian faith. Uh, my parents sent me to an Anglican school and uh, that school did a good job, certainly in exposing me to what you might call liturgical worship and the practice of Christian faith according to one tradition. Um, but I didn't experience any quickening of faith. I didn't, if you like, well, I wasn't converted uh, during that experience. And, and there's no fault of the school in that. I, they could well have been making an invitation to me and I wasn't listening. I, I just, mm. I don't know. Um, but it did ground me in, as I say, uh, worship and liturgy and aspects of church life which I have come to value immensely mm. uh, in more recent years. The turning point for me really came when I came to the university, basically. Uh, in fact, I was I was you know a professor at the university. I wasn't just a student. Some years later, I was converted to Christianity when I was in my early 30s. And um, that really arose because of... Uh, a series of circumstances, you know, more personal circumstances. My wife, um, who had no Christian upbringing at all, uh, she suddenly decided or discovered for herself her own faith mm. uh, and challenged me about that. And I was challenged because I thought I knew about this Christian faith and that I'd rejected it, basically, or I wasn't hostile to it. I just thought that it was, you know, of no particular relevance to my life. 
Uh, and my wife had decided the opposite was true. And that led us to, you know, be at odds for a while there. And um, anyway, one day she said to me, uh, and she never spoke to me like this in 12 years of marriage. She said, well, she's I'm taking our sons to church. I'm going to church with them mm. and I'm going to raise them as Christians and you can do what you like. Mm. Well, I thought, no, 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 no. Faced with that fork in the road, I knew that my responsibility was to my wife and family. So after, you know, some angry words, I have to say, uh, with shame, I did say, all right, well, um, if that's the case, then we will go to church, but I want us to go to a church that I'm familiar with and not something else. And um, so I agreed to go to an Anglican church because I had gone to an Anglican school and I mm. knew the Anglican church was harmless. <laughs> and um, so we went along to the harmless Anglican church and uh, there in sort of succession, firstly the vicar and then another gentleman who turned out to be another professor at the university, uh, both turned out to be obviously Christians, but also professional economists. So in quick succession, wow. God brought into my life two men uh, who it was impossible for me to say that they were fools. Mm. They were deluded uh, or the usual sorts of excuses. I couldn't say that, Brendan, because they were my professional colleagues. Yes. I, I admired them. I knew the, well, I, yes, I knew where they'd come from, what they'd done. They were clearly not fools, and yet they had taken on for themselves this uh, strange faith. Mm. And so uh, that led me on a journey as I, they were challenging me and I was challenging them. Uh, the man who was the vicar of the church we were going to said, you know, would I meet with him to talk about it? I said, of course. He said, well, uh, he said, have you got a Bible? I said, I do. He said, well, get, get it and open it up to what's called the Gospel of Mark as you find it towards the end. And they said, read it, read the first two chapters and I'll come and see you Tuesday night and you can ask me any question you like. And I said, okay, I'll do that. So I asked him all sorts of questions. And uh, the thing that most impressed me during that process, Brendan, was when he would say to me, that's a very good question and I don't know the answer to that. Wow. And I would say, you mean to tell me you don't know the answer to this and yet you still believe it to be true? And he said, yeah, that's right. And I said, well, how does that work? And he said, oh, he said, I reckon there are lots of things that you believe to be true that you don't understand. And I thought, ha, you got me there. Right? You, you, could, me you there. could concede the truth of that. that Absolutely. Yeah. Well, starting with commonplace things like, you know, electricity or how various things work, right? Mm. You know, I trust them. Mm. I have faith in them. Can I really explain how they operate? We'll take this computer. Mm. Um, I trust it. I have faith in it. Do I understand how it works? No. Mm. So he was right about that. And I thought, yeah, yeah, okay. Um, and at the end of that process, we read through the Gospel of Mark and that he said, well, what do you think? And I said, well, I said, tell you the truth. Uh, I don't really know. And he said, no, oh, is that all? And I said, well, no, I'll tell you this. I said, I don't think it's made up. Mm. And he said, really? Why not? And I said, well, if you are trying to make this up to trick people, I don't believe you put all sorts of things in there, like in particular the Gospel of Mark, Jesus chastising his disciples, mm. saying things like, you know, how long do I have to be with you? And mm. right? You wouldn't put that in there. It was too, said, authentic. too authentic. That's right. He said, good, so, so. And, and I said, well, I don't know. And um, he said, okay. He said, will you do one more thing for me? And I said, what's that? He said, meet me in town. So we went to a bookshop. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was the bookshop for a theological college 
uh, which I happen to now, now be a board member. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, we met there. I said, what's this? He says, he said, oh, he said, this is a theological college and this is a bookshop. Well, I was an academic, Brendan. I was used to the world of books and ideas. Yes. And I walked into that shop and I thought, oh, my goodness. I have underestimated this. Mm. I have sold this very, very short. So he he said, oh, come over here. And, and, and he said, oh, this section is well. He said, this is the apologetic section. I said, what's that? And so well, this is where people ask all the sorts of questions that you've been asking, and they give answers to defend the faith. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, here's one. He pulled one off the shelf. He said, look at this. I looked down and had all the arguments I'd been putting to him. He looked at me and he said, you weren't the first one to think of these things, were you? And I said, <laughs> <laughs> And uh, anyway, so when was this written? He said, oh, about 400 years ago. I said, thanks very much. Anyway, he said, uh, I wanted to buy you a book. So what's that? He said, well, this is called a commentary. I'm going to buy you this commentary on Mark. And all the questions you were asking me, so many of those questions are discussed in this book. And I said, what are the answers? There? He said, no, 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 the answers aren't there. He said, but people wrestle with the same questions, and this book will tell you about different views people have about different aspects. Mm. And Brendan, I realized that, one, I was dealing with an intelligent man. Secondly, he was introducing me to a whole world that I had sold short. Mm. And I was deeply ashamed, to tell you the truth, uh, as a man who thought himself as an intellectual, that I had basically written off Christianity as a waste of time and as a sort of childish superstition. And I felt ashamed mm. uh, because that was, I simply failed to think about it. Anyway, I, I went off, and um, the next Sunday we were in church. might have been a couple of Sundays afterwards. And I was sitting in the church. It was Christmas Day, actually. And this friend of mine had just given a lovely sermon on, on Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. And he called then for people to come up for communion. Uh, I hadn't been taking communion, of course, because I didn't believe. But I was sitting there in the church, and people were filing up to go forward to take communion. And I thought to myself, huh, what do you know? It's actually true. There it is. So I got up and I took communion. Anyway, he came along to give me my communion, looked at me and gave me my communion. And then after the service, he came straight down and he said to me, you took communion today. I said, that's right. He says, why? And I said, because it's true. There it is. And he gave me a great big hug and I was in the kingdom, brother. There it is. That is a wonderful story. A, a, a long process of, of, would you describe that it was it was being convinced or was it having your questions answered or was it something well, other than that? Well, no, no. They, they, certainly questions, not much questions answered, but questions treated seriously. Yeah, right. And giving me enough reason to believe. Yes. Right? As you well know, there's a distinction. You, you can't. No one can prove the Christian faith in the way that you can, you know, prove a mathematical proof. That, that, that's not what you're asking. And Jesus himself, um, he doesn't ask us to do that. He asks us to have faith. And the belief that we have, as Paul reminds us, that is itself divine. Mm. So at some point, you make that leap. Thanks be to God, basically. Mm. It's, you know, it's thanks to him mm. and the Holy Spirit that we actually make that. Um, I wouldn't want to compare myself with C.S. Lewis for a moment, but you know, in that sense, he got into his side, into the sidecar and his motorbike in Oxford, as he says, not a Christian, and got out of the sidecar in London a Christian. Mm. Well, I went to that church on that Christ Christmas morning, mm. not a Christian, 
and I came home, home from church that day. Yeah, a believer. Um, yeah. Exactly. So, so, so what, you know, what is it? Well, it's the action of the Holy Spirit yes. that quickens your heart, a strange quickening, as Wesley said. Um, and, and, and God prepares the, the ground. Uh, importantly, of course, like the hound of heaven, he, he keeps on your case. Pursues you, <laughs> yes. Yes. And he knows exactly what it is that's going to get to you. Yes. So in my case, bringing into my two professional colleagues yes. whom I could not dismiss as deluded. Right? You know, it was if he was saying to me, here, see what you make of that. Get out of that. Right? So. <laughs> and, and of course, I couldn't. But neither of them would, neither of them did, quote unquote, convince me. And neither of them would say they had convinced me. What, what they did was to show me that you could be a, a man of intelligence and integrity and a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, that's essentially what I like to think I am. Yes. Someone who has intelligence by God's grace, uh, some integrity by God's grace, and again by God's grace, a believer on the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me ask you this, Professor. As a man of, of undoubted intellectual capacity and, and uh, interest proven by your academic success before you became a Christian... Have you found Christianity intellectually satisfying? Is it is it something? Oh that... well, you well, it's a very deep pond. Uh, you you know well, Brendan, that you can spend a lifetime, as many Christians have down the ages, um, wrestling with all the depths and the riches and the height and the depth, as Paul describes it, uh, of the gospel and the riches of faith. Um. I faced the decision early in my Christian walk as to whether I would be, I'd take my intellect such as it is and use that to become a theologian or to become an ordained uh, minister. And I didn't feel God calling me that way. There were no doors that were opening or more to the point doors weren't closing for me in my other profession. Uh, And so I decided under God that, um, well, I said, look, this is the you want not to go that way then close the door mm. uh, and it wasn't closed so so my calling is to continue being an economist mm. and to do the best I can in the light of my Christian faith for what I'm called to do uh, that's um, what I believe but you know can you can I get intellectually stimulated and, and um, challenged by the depths and riches of the Christian gospel and the scriptures well you know the answer to that Brendan it's without a bottom. Mm. I, I love the way you're you're describing the the understanding you have about your current role. Mm. That you, mm. without actually uh, uh, articulating it in this way, you've described your current opportunities to serve as God's work. Mm. Is that a fair way for us to understand oh, how yes. you see your oh. work? Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, and as an economist, I, I often quote Jeremiah twenty nine seven uh, that you know we should pray for the welfare of the city, we should seek the welfare of the city. Um, he was talking about the city to which the Israelites have been sent into exile, of course, in the sense we are in exile, as you well know, from the holy city. But to seek the welfare of the city into which I've sent you, and to pray for it, uh, because in its welfare you will find your welfare, says Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. Well, says God. So Jeremiah in twenty nine seven. And um, that's what economists do. If you think about the city, you know, basically as material, our material life, our circumstances, our economy, 
um, then seeking the welfare of that city, making that work for people's welfare, uh, is the sort of mundane role that economists have, and that that is a it's a godly role. Nothing about saving people's souls. I might mm. add, as an individual Christian practitioner, of course, you're called to, as all believers are, to share the word and and um, well, love others as you love yourself and love God. Of course, um, you were called to do that at the very least. But, but the particular calling is about that, and it's a caring profession in as much as uh, doctors and nurses and teachers and others who are called in similar way to use their expertise uh, in this world to serve people in that in that capacity but in doing so you know you you try to be well you try to be the lord jesus to people Mm. Uh, and jesus wasn't any friend of poverty that's for sure Mm. and uh, good economics is about amongst other things relieving poverty and material distress Mm. getting a little bit more um philosophical and going back to some of the points we was discussing earlier there's a uh, many people would see the field of economics as being associated with the the management of of power structures of who has and who hasn't control or uh, opportunity or, or uh, resources. Where do where do you understand that view of economic leverage in the terms of of serving a nation? Is it is this overlay of of power struggle? that many people read into an economic program or an economic philosophy? Well, it's a great question. There's many dimensions to that question. Brendan, um, money is power. Um, Resources, command over resources confers power in this world. And one of the things that a Christian finds him or herself doing. Uh, And just as an aside here, um, it's unsurprising that in many of these senior roles in the big public institutions that have to deal with these questions, you will find Christians uh, Mm. serving in those places. Mm. One of the reasons, uh, well, one of the things that a Christian finds him or herself doing is trying to mediate uh, that power for the benefit of the people, of ordinary people. Um, Because the power itself can be used to aggrandize individuals at other people's expense. Mm. And one of the things that economics tries to do, um, well, firstly is to study how the exercise of that power uh, is conferred by particular types of economic arrangements. And um, so economists have quite a bit to say about what's called market power, Mm. which is the power of uh, monopolies or cartels to make themselves rich at the expense of their customers or their workers. Uh, Governments can accumulate and exercise power through taxation or um, regulation, granting favours, establishing prohibitions and such like. Now, all of those things can be used for ill Mm. as well as for good. And an economist as scientist tries to understand and see which parts of these structures confer power and how Mm. to understand that. And then the economist who, um, in particular as a Christian, but even if he or she isn't a Christian, has some sense of decency and right or wrong, tries to ensure that the structures that are created 
mm. use that power for um, for good and not for evil. Mm. Uh, and Brendan, as we record uh, this podcast, uh, you and your listeners will know that governments are using power in well in ways we've not seen since the Second World War or possibly even earlier to intervene in economic decisions, uh, ideally to preserve people's economic welfare in the face of quite significant challenges. Mm. Uh, so economists are involved, my colleagues and I, to some extent, but my colleagues are involved in designing those interventions, mm. advocating for some things and not others, and trying to be on the lookout, on the guard against the exercise of power, mm. which would actually bring people low mm. rather than void them up in these conditions. Mm. So th that may be a bit abstract for you, but that's how I think about your question. Yeah, that's, an, that's a very good answer. What, what I, I think um, what, what I'm he hearing you describe is there are, I know there would be some Christians who would say that a, a Christian view of the economy should be in totally free market, that it should be, no. therefore, no. Another, another view would be that mm. it should be totally regulated. Mm. No. What I'm hearing is that you, you need the wisdom to respond with either of those positions, depending on what's on right. for the good of the nation, for the good of the That's people right. of the nation. Exactly and, right, Brendan, that there's an historical context to these things. Uh, there are objectives that you're trying to achieve. And in some cases, using market processes, which are essentially you know, free, people can make up their own minds, whether they want to do X or Y. Uh, sometimes that's an appropriate response. And other times you've got to switch that off and you have to use a much more directive approach mm. uh, in economic matters for the sake of people's livelihoods, for the sake of giving them their daily bread, mm. uh, to be frank. And um, uh, one of the exciting things about economics is that it you know, gives us a whole raft of tools, many of which we're calling on right at this minute, mm. uh, to be able to use to alleviate hardship. Uh, we're still in the midst of the experience we're going through with COVID-19. Uh, but, you know, most of my colleagues at this stage anyway are not predicting that it will be as deep an economic disaster as the 1930s Great Depression was, let alone the 1890s Great Depression in this country, which I assume many of your students simply never have heard of. No. Um, it was a desperately serious downturn, very, very bad. Uh, at a time when there was no federal government, there was no central bank, there was no monetary policy, there was no tax policy. So we um, weathered the Great Depression of the 1890s without any of those safety lines, safeguards, mm. and it was a desperately bad situation. Uh, this time, for all its seriousness, we have lots of weapons at our disposal, and we are using them, as you probably are aware. And much of that is the result of, you know, in the meantime, well, 100 years' worth of writing and thinking uh, about economics and what actually works and doesn't work in particular circumstances. And thank goodness we have those weapons we can we can wage war with on this occasion. And another question, if you don't mind, about how you understand your faith position in the work that you do. Are you ever concerned that society at large and, and the individuals in that society are tending to look more to government or to the institution of society as as their point of salvation, their point of provision, then they might be to uh, 
other sources, friends, church, family, God. Is, is that ever a, an issue for you guys? Well, um, I think every believer, Brendan, every Christian who loves the Lord Jesus is at some level pained uh, when he or she sees other people, you know, whom Jesus loves and for whom the gospel is an open invitation, um, turning and seeking, putting their trust in princes, as the Bible says. Mm. Right? Well, the Bible says not to do it, of course. Right? Putting their trust in princes, putting their trust in everywhere else. Um, we, we know as believers that that's building a house on the sand, not on the rock. Mm. Uh, and it's something that, that every Christian in ways that a court, he is, or she is called to in particular circumstances to gently point out to people that there's another way right, uh, in the right circumstances. So, um, yes, it is a troubling thing when people look to other systems to save them rather than uh, the gospel. Now, having said that, there's no, you know, the Christian council, advice that is to say, is not, well, you know, Forget about going to the doctor if you're sick. Uh, God will look after you. Right? Or forget about taking other precautions. God will look after you. You, you know that that's, a, that's presumption, that that isn't faith. Uh, and God works through the institutions of our society yes. to bring about uh, welfare and health. Yes. And that's how come God works through yes. economists and doctors and others. Yeah, that's good. The question is this, Brendan, do people regard that as God? Yes. Or do they regard that as something that God has provided for them to give their welfare? Mm. And that's the difference. Mm. If you worship these things, mm. that's when you're on the wrong tram. Yeah, very good. Yeah, very good. One last question, uh, Professor, if you don't mind. In the role mm. that you fill in almost in every area of your life, I suspect, mm. you will have your critics, those that mm. think you should have made a different decision or taken a different action. Uh, some of those criticisms are very vocal and can be harsh. Mm. How, how have you lived with the the um, the criticism that comes to the work that yeah. you do when you've done it in such good faith? Well, thank you. I, I respect other people's points of view as far as I possibly can, Brendan, and I don't regard myself as having a monopoly on the truth. Uh, that is why I made the point about teams earlier on. Mm. Working in teams is a great insulator uh, against being wrong and arrogantly wrong. Mm. Um, of course, you know you want to stick to your guns, but when you, when it's clear that you're on the wrong tram, so to speak, then then you can be put right by your colleagues. So I don't mind criticism. Um, obviously, I prefer the criticism to come to be directed towards the decision, mm. uh, towards the evidence or the argument, rather than imputing that in some way I personally yes. uh, am responsible for yes. this or that I'm you know, a bad person. So I, I try as hard as possible in my own critical engagements to separate those two things. You know, play the ball and not the man, Yes, you might say, in a sporting context. And it's the same thing here. Stick to the argument. Don't pick people off. Mm. But in the context of being a Christian in these areas, it doesn't happen as much now, at least it hasn't for a while, uh, as it has done in the past when people have found out that I'm a Christian and therefore decided that's the way they can attack me. Yes. And to make a mockery of my faith and to imply, uh, one dear person implied that 
since I was a Christian, I was asked to set the minimum wage, mm. that I would decide the minimum wage by by consulting the entrails of an owl. Oh, dear. So, you know, in other words, I was some sort of superstitious yes, yes. Um, brittle worker. That's what I thought I was, and it was just a mockery. Um, another person claimed that it was unconstitutional for a Christian to be asked to set minimum wages or to set in any public office. Uh, and that dear person is completely 180 degrees wrong, of course. Mm. Um, the Constitution doesn't say much about religion at all, but what it does say in Section 116, and your students might like to go and look that up, um, is very short. It simply says that there shall be no religious test mm. uh, to hold an office of the Commonwealth. Mm. And what that means is that far from it being unconstitutional for a Christian to be the Prime Minister, for instance, right? let alone on the board of the Reserve Bank, is that it would be unconstitutional in Australia for anybody to say, you know what, you can't be the Prime Minister yes. because you're a Christian. Yes. You can't sit on the board of the Reserve Bank yeah, because you're a Christian. Yeah. Or a Jew or a Muslim or whatever. Yes. Right? That would be unconstitutional. So um, I'm not alone and you're not alone and, and many of our students uh, listening wouldn't be alone and being mocked or ridiculed uh, for their faith. I, I don't like it any more than you do. All I remember, of course, is that much worse happened to the Lord Jesus himself. Amen. And as much as people argue and make nasty things and say nasty words, uh, I'm under no threat at this stage of being put up on a cross. Yeah. Uh, so I just think, you know, we were promised as much. You stick to your guns. You pray about it. You ask for the strength. And the Holy Spirit will give you the words that are appropriate at the time. Amen. Use the gifts that God has given you the training and insight is provided through your life and be faithful. Professor, you've been incredibly generous with your time. I, I really want to thank you for that. Thank um, you, Brendan. It's been an absolute privilege to hear a little of your heart and to explore the things that are that are leading you as you assist in leading our nation. Um, I'm, I'm sure that um, the people listening to this will have a renewed sense of needing to pray for the leaders of our country. And of, uh, yes, please having a dispensation of God's grace on you personally and professionally. And uh, we continue yeah. to do that. Is there any last thing that you might want to leave with our, with our assistance before we let you go? Oh, well, I often like to say as the, uh, the old prayer book says, you know, quarter, lift up your heart. Amen. <laughs> these are, these are difficult times we're living through. There are lots of reasons to be despondent, but God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Amen. So that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. That's our gospel. That's our promise. Hang on to that. Share that with others as they become despondent. Mm. There's good reason to be despondent, that's for sure. But at the end of the day, God's in control. There is good so be news. of good cheer. Yeah. Amen. Lift up your heart. It is good news. And Brendan, can I say to you and your professional colleagues, thank you for the work that you do as teachers, your dedication and commitment. Bless you all. Uh, and to the students who are studying and perhaps listening to this podcast, uh, very best wishes and, uh, and God's love and from me uh, to you in all that lies ahead. Every blessing. Thank you, Professor Harper. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Thanks, Brendan.